it's difficult not to think about that injunction of 1 Corinthians 14 in which we read, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. Lauding and magnifying and exalting the name of God, even in song as we have done, and lifting so highly and so majestically all that which is His holy and His divine will. The blessedness with which we're able to assemble on this occasion in response to God's commandment, and to do so with a desire to worship Him in truth and in spirit, is certainly no better way to begin the week than that one. And also how edifying it is, not only to God's name, but also for our personal well-being, to keep our mind directed in this life to where it rightfully belongs, on things truly eternal and things truly magnificent in character. In Job 23 verse 12, that ancient patriarch of Uz made this interesting statement. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips, but I have esteemed his words more than my necessary food. For Job, the word of God was that important. It was more important to him than in fact was the food on a table, than the things that he may ingest for the sustenance of his physical body. In our Bible study hour this morning, as we gave interest to the things of the Holy Scriptures, and now for the next few moments in our worship service this morning, to turn our attention to some matters found in the Word of God. And with that, we have, in fact, for several weeks now, been giving some interesting reflection to the matters of the church. In fact, with regard to them, these are some of the things that we have visited. In fact, we learned that how tragic it is in fact, words almost fail to describe that rather sad viewpoint where some think the church is irrelevant or immaterial or unimportant, and that really it does not have the character and flavor with which it's invested in the Word of God. So many throughout the decades have written, especially lately it would seem, toward that end, and it's been our goal simply to revisit what does God say about His church, and in what way is it described? First of all, we learned that there is but one of them. In our opening lesson, there is but one body, Ephesians 4.4. 4, and it is that one that Christ purchased with His blood, Acts 20.28. 20, and by making note of that, we began to seek to identify it. What are its identifying characteristics? We found it was established at a specific place, Jerusalem. We found that the details were given on a specific location, Acts chapter 2. We found, in fact, it occurred at a definitive time, that first Pentecost following the Lord's resurrection. And thus, any religious body that cannot trace its origin to that place and time, by default, cannot be the precious and singular and unique body of Christ. We also, though, learned along the way that Christ bears a beautiful relationship to that body. He is its head. He is its founder. He is its builder. He is the chief cornerstone. And any group that does not hold Him to that office and exalt Him in that way again, by default, is it the church of our Lord. You'll notice that even last time, we gave some thought to the matter of the name. Does it matter what name the body is called? And does it matter what name individual members thereof are called? And yet we found in the Scriptures that God does make statements regarding that name, and we reminded ourselves of how special and how beautiful those names are. As we come to the lesson this morning, might I ask that we give some thought to yet another matter as it relates to that church of which we read with favorable character in the Bible, namely the place she has in prophecy. 
as we visit several passages over the next few moments, looking at Old Testament as well as some New Testament fulfillment, may we be reminded again that the body of which we are a part as Christians is something to which we should give often and frequent appreciation. Because as we're about to see, she is in fact more special than what in general the world appreciates. With those things in mind, you'll notice immediately with me some of the things found in the context of that reading that Brother Gary read earlier. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we begin to notice rather powerfully how vital it is to appreciate the church from the following viewpoint. Beginning in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and pure it with the washing of water by the Word. And then verse 27, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. As Paul gave some remarks that we as husbands, of course, should keep in mind, principally he had in mind the matters relating to that organization known as the church. And you'll notice that he said, in its design and in the character by which it was set forth, it was holy it was blemishless. And in that regard, notice the word glorious as it attached to it as well. It's a glorious church. I've entitled the series of lessons, Glory in the Church. And I took it out of that chapter in verse uh, number 21 especially. You'll notice in, as we give some thought to this glory that's found in the church. Today, we're going to gain a perspective about that era in prophecy that is so easy to, to allow it to pass us by. In fact, even at this point in the lesson, may we in fact give some thought to this. It's so easy, isn't it? And make no mistake, it is the effort of the devil that you and I as Christians, we know the rudimentary fundamentals of the church and we understand the basis of how it came to be and we understand the marvelous glory and intent of God with respect to her. But isn't it so easy, and in fact, can't it so gradually happen that the church can become an afterthought in our lives? Sunday morning rolls around, we get up and put on some special clothing or clothing we may not wear most other days of the week, and we go and invest two hours at the church building. And we go back home after those services are complete, and we perhaps enjoy a fine meal. Maybe we enjoy an afternoon with friends and family. Perhaps we even watch some television or take a nap. We perhaps return on Sunday evening and invest another hour in service in a community, collective way, and then come the af afternoon following that, we happily return to our places not to give the church much more thought until Wednesday at the earliest. It's easy then, isn't it, to meander the way through the week and allow God to occupy Wednesdays and, sun and parts of Sunday, and really not allow any of the other days to be singularly dedicated and devoted in thinking to Him. I would submit to you that if that's the approach that we take, there is something missing. For if there's this glory in the church, and if it has in fact this blemishless, spotless, glorious behavior that it should occupy your life and mine not just a couple of days and a few hours a week, but rather it should be the whole of who we are and what we ever hope to be. The glory in the church. 
one of the things that we shall learn then as we give some thought to the matter of prophecy this morning is that very element of detail. As we begin to build up toward that point, I would ask you to notice about midway through that slide that there are a number of Old Testament prophecies that speak to the character of the church. And may we ask, what was the significance of them? Why were they incorporated and inserted into the Old Testament passages and texts? Though many things could be asserted and said, give some thought with me to this. Once that church was, was in fact established, could it not be that by appreciating those prophecies and by appreciating their nature and fulfillment, one would have been able to identify that kingdom once it was established? And furthermore, not only a matter of identification, but also a matter of confirmation, that namely, these holy scriptures did not come by the mind of man, but rather they came through the infallible great presence of the almighty and awesome God of heaven. And as such, when he prophesied matters and they came to be, one could then understand that God was behind that church. It wasn't just the work of those apostles. To be sure, they had fundamental work to do in those early days. But isn't it amazing that that church was the definitive effort toward the saving of the human family through that special kingdom that he had prophesied in the Old Testament. It is with that in mind, might we give some thought to this great plan of God? We understand so well, don't we, that man isn't perfect. Often committing sin and guilty thereof, often transgressing and violating the precious and beautiful will of heaven, often alienating himself from the plan and majesty of God. And in that condition, God so loved us that He sent His only begotten Son that we might be able to be saved from sin. Look at just a few of these passages in Ephesians 1 verse 4. Even before the foundation of the earth, of the world was laid, God had a plan in mind whereby all of us could in fact approach the matter of salvation through the greatness of that one, the Son. But that passage is only matched in its thoroughness as you look at these others. The text that was read for us earlier in Ephesians chapter 3. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it amazing that that purpose is described as an eternal one? The church, you see, was no afterthought. It didn't come into existence just as a plan B, if you please. It came into existence as the penultimate zenith of God's desire for the saving of you and me. And if we thus trivially look upon it, or treat her more lightly than the descriptives provided of her, shame on us. We have failed to appreciate how special that church is. When we come together collectively and meet like this, it is a special thing. But even day by day, as you and I are individual members of the body, May we always lift high that banner of the one whom we follow, Hebrews 2 verse 10. And may we do so by conducting ourselves as a rightful one who's a member of that body, never seeking to disgrace it, to harm it, to trash it in the minds of those who may hear the way we talk or watch the way we live. The church is that special. 
She is so special that the Apostle Paul was willing to, in fact, even approach the matter of death on many occasions for her as he would proclaim and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, we have another descriptive given of God that in many ways challenges us so greatly because it's so far removed from what you and I can do as humans. God on that occasion said, I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and that which is not yet from that which is ancient in the past. You see, the future is not something concealed or hidden to God. And He knew that as a result of man's sin, there was going to be the establishment of this body, the church. We learned earlier in this series of lessons the church had a definitive beginning here on earth, but in the mind of God, it stretches all the way back into the far recesses of eternity because He knew that you and I were going to fail. He knew we were going to sin. He knew we were going to talk the way we ought not talk, go places we ought never to be, and do things that shame on us we ought not do. He knew it because, you see, the future isn't hidden to Him And He loved us enough that He had already made the decision that the Son was going to be offered. And that He would establish a church, that body, and that we could become members of it. May we never look upon the church as a sidelight, an afterthought, that which consumes at most four hours out of a week. A week, you see, has 168 total hours, and to devote only four of them to God, that isn't putting the kingdom first, is it? And Jesus did say, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and His righteousness, Matthew 6.33. It is in light of those things we're challenged in this morning as we give some brief thoughts about the church and its relation to prophecy. As you'll note near the bottom of that slide, there is a direct leading thus into these passages. It is true that those of a premillennial twist simply degrade the church. But as we've noted earlier in our lesson today, it's easy for us to do the same. Even though we know the basis of what the church is described as, yet we live in such a way that it's not really that important. It's easy to be tempted to gradually come to the point that though we once were earnest and fervent and energetic and excited, that we no longer are. Perhaps we've given thought to the church becoming a matter of habit or a matter of ritual. It's important indeed to train up a child so that he or she learns to understand that Sunday is devoted in a way that's different from the other days of the week. But there should be that appreciation that every day we live as we should before God because we're members of this body, this church. And as such, God has demands of us not just one day or two days, but every day. The example of Paul and others highlights all of that. But so does in some ways the word spoken of in Old Testament prophecy. We, in fact, will somewhat quickly notice a few of these. In the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 2, though it was written again so long before the birth of the Savior, the prophet Isaiah said some matters that have phrases in it like this. The mountain of the Lord's house is referenced. And as as if that isn't enough, it is noted that it would be established in the top of the mountains. 
And what's more, we notice that this would occur in the last days and that all nations would flow to it. There have been many who have taken a dim view toward that as if it makes reference to something in ancient Israel. But we understand, as Isaiah would later help us appreciate so clearly, this was referring to the establishment of the church. It was in the plan of God and he even told Isaiah about it. And Isaiah so wonderfully recorded it. The Israelites thus had in view the establishment of this mountain of the Lord's house. Greatly and also convincingly. We see in 1 Timothy 3.15 a phrase that reminds us of that one. On that occasion, as Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The house of God is therein described, and it takes us back to this mount of the Lord's house. And Paul said it was referring to the church. Now that we've identified that mountain of the Lord's house, notice with me what else the ancient prophet said about it. It would be exalted. The church is an exalted body. She is mighty and she is great and she is glorious. The Pippin Church of Christ ought to be a beaming light, not only to this neighborhood and community, but yea, wherever you and I may have occasion to dwell and be by the influence that we're able to exert toward and on others. And you'll notice with me as well, that phrase, the last days, was the very one, of course, that Peter directly used in Acts 2.16 for the day of Pentecost and following. And sure enough, those last days saw that establishment of that body. What are your thoughts then in mind relative to the church? Do we relegate it to an afterthought far more than we should? Do we treat it like a habit, just a ritual that we go through once every seven days? If we do that, doesn't it cause us to think a little bit about this? Aren't there other ways in life when we have the position to see excitement? We all know right now there's a basketball tournament going on. The NCAA basketball tournament, there is almost a level of excitement that cannot even be harnessed. We see all these teams participate in this tournament and there's such invigoration, such excitement, such involvement. Not only are the players excited, those in the stands are fraught with a level of excitement. We see it on the television screen. They jump and they holler and they shout and do so for two solid hours, sometimes never even sitting down. And yet sometimes... If we aren't careful, we find it hard to make our way to a church building, to sit on a nice, comfortable pew in a fairly comfortable building for two hours on a Sunday. Interesting, isn't it, how that causes one to think. There are people that will travel thousands of miles to these games and will invest a great deal of money to stay in a hotel, to pay their way into that game, to buy souvenirs, to eat out at all the restaurants. It does make us think, doesn't it? Where are our priorities? I'm not by any means asserting that it's wrong to go to those games, of course. But it does cause us to think, if they can be that excited about a ball game, or maybe you and I can be that excited about a ball game sometimes, 
Do we have that same excitement for this body that is in the mind of God initially and came to its fruition in being? The church is that glorious. They're near the bottom of that slide. You'll notice that not only that passage in Acts chapter 2, but we've given some thought, haven't we, to the nature of how beautiful this kingdom is. In the Old Testament, that kingdom was lifted so highly because as David and Solomon and others reigned over it, it was what the Jews longed for, at least they thought. They wanted a kingdom for which they could reign and rule over earth and live peacefully. God set up that kingdom. It's not what they thought it was. It's the church. We can live peacefully in it harmoniously with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and do so in a way knowing that our final abode is not here. But we look, in fact, for a kingdom that's there, don't we? Hebrews eleven sixteen. That beautiful kingdom, thus, even from the days of Isaiah chapter 2, helps assert in our mind that this wasn't the only prophecy. Look at the next one. The little minor prophet of Joel only three chapters in that book, but the last four verses of the second chapter, in fact, are the very ones Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost. Here was an inspired apostle, and he dipped back into the realms of the Old Testament, quoted identically from Joel, and said, This is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. What had Joel said? This is what Joel had said. You'll notice some of the brief statements that might hearken us back to that thinking. Joel, in essence, though he labored so long again before the birth of Jesus, he nonetheless said, There's coming a day in those latter days when I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. He even made note that there would be the realization that the old men would see visions, the young men would dream dreams, Though the men and the handmaidens, there would be the appreciation of some matters miraculous. But through that all, might we notice, he said, I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. When Peter quoted that, he and those other apostles had been those on whom the Holy Spirit had come. Acts 2 verses 3 and 4. In fact, had we not read in the first four verses of that chapter, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come... They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. At that point, we notice it filled all the house where they were sitting, but then it continues. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We notice that the Holy Spirit had come upon them and not many verses later, the precious message of truth was unleashed from their lips. And Peter and the others preached for the first time that grandeur and greatness of not only the nature of the Christ in all of His fullness and glory, but what He had done for the human family and that body that He had purchased. You see, the church wasn't just in the mind of God from Pentecost onward. It was just so special that Isaiah spoke of it and so did Joel. What about you and my today in our mind? Again, back to some of the thoughts. Do we look upon the church sometimes as an afterthought, as unimportant? If we do, may we in fact readjust our thinking, alter it and bring back to the church its rightful priority in our lives. As you'll notice, 
this proclamation or coming of the Spirit upon all flesh. It happened first for the Jews, but then not many chapters later for the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And with that, the Spirit having come upon all flesh, you and I are still those who benefit from that. You'll notice yet a third passage. And this is one that also gives us even a deeper appreciation, it seems, about just how special this church is. May we visit Daniel, the second chapter, for just a moment. And in fact, isn't it interesting? If you look at the quadruplet of twos we've looked at so far today, Isaiah 2, Joel 2, Daniel 2, all fulfilled in Acts 2, Chapter 2, you see, has a nice refrain to it as we look at all four of those passages. And here as we visit Daniel, the second chapter, this is a somewhat lengthy chapter, but nonetheless the major scenes perhaps are familiar. The Babylonian king at the time was a gentleman, Nebuchadnezzar. And as we see in him, he was one at that stage in life who stood defiantly opposed to the things of God. God blessed him, however, with a dream. In that dream, of course, he saw a tremendous image, a statue, if you please. It was composed of various metallic elements. Its head was of gold. Its arms and breast area was, in fact, of silver. Its midsection was, in fact, that which was of a different metal yet, that which was of brass. And then finally the lower section of iron, and then ultimately the feet of iron mixed with clay. This image, of course, greatly troubled Nebuchadnezzar because in his image, in his dream, not only did he see it, but there was also a stone that was made without hands. And as this stone rolled into the image, not only did it collide with it or smite it, as the text says, but it pulverized it, crushed it to pieces and powdered and blown, in fact, away. We notice the stone, however, grew and became the size of a giant mountain that filled the whole earth. This dream troubled Nebuchadnezzar. And we might remember, so troubling was it, he called his magicians and sorcerers and wise men and said, not only tell me the dream, but tell me what it means. Because he had forgotten the dream. Maybe you and I have had that happen. We know we had a dream the previous night, but we wake up and can't think of what it was. Nebuchadnezzar demanded, you tell me the dream and you also tell me what it means. This was in that day, of course, when dreams often carried significance like that. Those wise men more than once said, you tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. But he said, you're just delaying, you're just wasting time. And finally he put in fact a guarantee, if you don't tell it to me, I'll take your life. News like that came before Daniel. And Daniel thus, as we well remember, prayed unto God with earnestness. And he said, I'll tell you the dream. He made the claim, God will reveal it to me and I will, of course, share it with you. In that dream, Daniel spoke about kingdoms. The head of gold represented a certain kingdom on earth and the various metallic parts after it. By the character of the reduction in preciousness of the metal, we learn something about the decreasing ascendancy, if you will, of the nature of nobility of these kingdoms. 
But we also learn something about the character otherwise because they were further down on the image. First of all was the Babylonian Empire, the kingdom. And then after that came the Medes and Persians. And then came the Greeks. And then came the Romans. One by one, the kingdoms and civilizations of men waned into history. As great as that Babylonian kingdom was, it only lasted for several decades and then wiped off the face of the earth when the Persians conquered. As great as the Medo-Persian Empire was, a couple of hundred years and she too was gone, relegated to the bends of history. As great as Alexander the Great and the other Grecian kings were, they too finally met their demise when Rome conquered them, and they too were now just a part of that which is often studied in history books. And then the mighty Roman Empire came to her echelon and to her zenith. She too, as great as she was, was not perpetual, for she too ultimately collapsed and fell. We already begin to see something interesting one by one. Men have been able to establish kingdoms, but one by one they always end up falling. They always end up removing themselves from existence as conquered by somebody else. But that takes us back to the dream. So if one by one all these kingdoms met their demise, what about the stone? What about the stone? One can only wonder, what did the stone represent when it collided or smote the image and though the image was pulverized and went away into nothing the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth what is the stone Daniel did go on to tell us it was made without hands and he told us when this came to be because he says in the days of these kings Daniel 2:44 shall the god of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed the stone also represents a kingdom. Now, it isn't like the Babylonian, nor like the Grecian, or the Persian, or the Roman. This kingdom, he says, greater than all of them. And isn't it still amazing, he says, once established, it would never be destroyed. In other words, this kingdom, which you and I now recognize as the church, is prophesied by Daniel, once established on Pentecost, she would never cease to be. What kingdom of men can say that? As great as the ancient Egyptian kingdom was, it met its demise. All those others we listed did too. And let it be noted that today, as great as we think the United States of America may be, she isn't perpetual based on her own character, but God's church is. I would submit that that is something on which we should give some deep reflection that the church, once established by the very plan and matter of God, would never cease to be. She's your last until the end of time. At this point, you and I do not know how much time there yet remains for this planet Earth. It may be sometime this afternoon will be its end. It may be a hundred million years from now. We simply do not know, but this much we know. The church, whenever that finality shall come, shall still be in the ascendancy. And it will still be the glorious body through which each and every one can know the salvation that God has to offer. It will never become a time when it will be relegated to a past dustbin, when it will be unimportant. When we began this series of lessons and noted some of those comments that the church is obsolete, it isn't obsolete. It never will be obsolete because it's that kingdom 
we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that's going to be handed over to God and they are the ones that will enter into heaven. Are you and I a member of that kingdom today? Are we thankful and excited and fervent in our service in it? All of these points bring us to an element of conclusion. Daniel 2, Isaiah 2, and Joel 2 have all pointed us carefully like a giant spotlight to Acts chapter 2. And as we've given some thought briefly to the church in prophecy, we've been reminded, among other things, of just how special, unique, and glorious the church is. It is an honor to be a part of it, really. It is a privilege. There are times that here on earth one can be a part of an organization and it's really not all that honorable. I know at times at work a committee may be formed and almost by default you end up serving on it. You may not like it. It may not be a time of excitement and you may not feel like the hour or two or three in which you spend in the meetings is time well spent. The church is vital and she is glorious. It is an honor to be a part of it. And as we think about that honor... Wasn't it Jesus who said in Matthew 11, verse 11, Among those born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. But he that is in the kingdom is greater than he, even the least in the kingdom. Are you in the kingdom today? This kingdom that has been in the mind of God since the deep stretches of distant past eternity and that will stand until the end of time. If you're not a part of that kingdom today, why not? Have you reached an age of knowing wrong from right? Knowing that in your current state you're a sinner and lost from God, but knowing also that God sent His Son for you, knowing that there's a plan of salvation and that now there's this kingdom of which you can be a part? If you know that, then today, why not submit humbly to the gospel call of invitation? You must hear the word of the Lord you must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You must repent of the sins in your life. You must confess the name of Christ as the Son of God, and you must be baptized. Those aren't my thoughts. They're God's thoughts. We simply have the privilege of speaking them and, in fact, asserting them into the lives of the human family. If you've become a member of that body, but you have not lived faithfully to that calling, don't forget the church is special. We can't just live any old way we want and think that that's honorable with respect to the church. We're to be holy, 1 Peter 1.16. Today, if your life has not been as it should have been and others are aware of those faults and public failures, why not come back to that first love today? Let us pray with you and for you as, in fact, exemplified in the New Testament. We'd be more than honored to assist you to take a, your rightful place by the side of Christ in the kingdom which is His body. If we could be of assistance, please let us know in what way we can do that while together we stand and while we sing.